0: So I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, which is sort of towards the end of the Old Testament if you're looking for it. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 790, 790 is the third chapter of Zephaniah. And we are we are looking at four lesser known passages from the Old Testament that talk about the coming of Christ. Uh, Advent is a season of anticipation and longing. We are preparing to celebrate Christmas, of course, and that's part of what Advent is for. But we're also looking forward to Christ's return and are anticipating the full restoration, the full renewal that He will bring when He comes in glory. And so we're looking at the Minor Prophets, and this week it's Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, through the end of the chapter page 790 in your pew Bibles if you're following. If you don't have a Bible, please just take one of ours, take it home, use it at home, and give it to someone who needs it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with, by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." The book of Zephaniah, and some of us are not familiar with that book, it's a little book in the Old Testament, but the book is about the day of the Lord. And if you've read other prophets, that's a familiar term, and it's a term that uh, really means a dramatic intervention of God into human history. That's what the day of the Lord is about. There are some historical events that express that day of the Lord. So, for example, the fall of Nineveh, one of the oppressors of Israel. That's the day of the Lord. That's God intervening in human history. Or in the New Testament, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God comes on the church, that is also the day of the Lord. That's God intervening in a dramatic way into our lives. But the full expression, the ultimate day of the Lord, is when Jesus returns and restores Everything. And he renews everything. Comes in glory with his angels, and there's no more sorrow, there's no more sin, there's no more enemies or oppressors of God's people left at all. So that's the final expression of the day of the Lord. And as you read this passage, yes, some of this was fulfilled at certain times, some of this is being fulfilled in the life of God's people now, but it is really looking towards that ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord when the Lord returns in glory. And Advent is about that. We're looking forward, we're longing for that final restoration at the second Advent of our Lord when He returns in glory. So that's the day I would like us to consider this morning. When Jesus returns, there will be full victory, full restoration, full renewal full salvation for his people, and we talk about these things frequently. But Zephaniah gives us a different vision of that day, something I don't think we talk about quite as much as we should, something that is tremendously encouraging and, I think, life-changing for us. So what is the vision that Zephaniah has for that day of the Lord when Jesus returns? Look at verse 17. This is the heart of this passage, verse 17, Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now this is the image that the prophet gives us to hold on to, to long for, to look forward to, and the images of God's unrestrained expression of joy at saving us and loving us. This is the image of God dancing and singing and rejoicing over His people. So when you think about the day of the Lord, there are many aspects of that. There is the judgment. There is the full salvation. There is the renewal of creation. All of that is true of that day. And yet... Part of that day, part of our experience, the vision that Zephaniah gives us to hold on to is God rejoicing over us. Is God singing? Is God dancing? Is God expressing this enjoyment and happiness over us, over his people? Loud singing. I mean, this is not in any way restrained or reluctant. God is over the top rejoicing over his people. That's the vision for that day. And this vision tells us three things, at least, and we'll work through them. This vision of Zephaniah tells us what God is like. It explains why he is doing what he's doing right now in the world. And finally, this vision can totally change us. So it tells us something about God. It tells us something about what he is doing and it has the potential of utterly transforming us. So what does it tell us about God? It's quite simply, very obviously in the text, that God is a being who is capable of joy. He is a being that rejoices. He is a happy person. He is a God who is able to sing and dance When the Greek church fathers wrestled with this biblical teaching of the Trinity, and this was hard to formulate, they they had all this biblical data. God is one. Hero Israel, your God is one, right? And then you see Jesus, who is also God, and the Holy Spirit, who is also God. And yet, even the New Testament is insistent that God is one. How do you put it together? So they wrestled through it, and they formulated this idea that is biblical and orthodox and is believed by all Christians everywhere, that God is both one, and yet he eternally exists in three persons. They're distinct, and yet they are one. Boggles our mind. We can't understand that. But to put the biblical data together, this is what we believe about God. God is one, and yet God is also three. And to help us understand just how that works, the Greek fathers gave us this image It's an image of a dance. That the Trinity is an eternal movement of love. That God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves God the Father. God the Father and God the Son love God the Holy Spirit. And there's this ongoing mutual expression of love and delight in each other for all eternity. It's a dance. Mutual exaltation. They're delighting, they're enjoying, they're happy in each other, they're always eager to please one another. This is who God is. I think this is a terrific way to think about the Trinity. The Trinity isn't just an idea that blows our minds. It's an image of who God is. And it is essential for our understanding of God's nature. You see, God is essentially happy. God is essentially good. There's something in Him, in the relationships within the Trinity, that proclaims that He is a God who enjoys others. He is a God who cannot be by Himself, and so even within His nature, there's oneness and there's three, exalting each other. Enjoying each other, delighting in each other for all eternity. There's this dance, the movement of love. No inner struggle, no conflict, no competition, just everlasting joy that is essential to who God is. And then we see that happiness of God expressed in creation. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God create anything? especially if you believe that the Trinity is that expression of happiness, this internal, relational happiness that is from all eternity. Why is this happy God, this overly happy God that is constantly expressing that happiness to one another and is fully satisfied within his own community, have you ever asked why he needed to create anything? Well, the answer is, just like Henry Nouwen tells us, that God doesn't want to keep his joy to himself. He wants everyone to share in this joy. Creation is an expression of God's happiness. It's a sharing of his joy with others. Now, read Genesis 1 through that lens. This is God saying, I'm going to make this, and I'm going to make that. And then he pulls back and he says, This is good. So he's happy. There is goodness in creation that is reflective of God's joy and his happiness. This is why God created everything to express that inner Trinitarian joy of God. Creation can easily be described as a burst of God's pleasure. God is creating out of His own happiness, out of His own joy, out of His own pleasure. He just makes these beautiful things because He Himself, in His core, is beautiful. And so it is expressed in creation. Creation is God laughing out loud, not keeping it to Himself, but expressing it with full emotion, full creative energy of God, and making worlds and universes. It's amazing. Amazing to think of that as the drive behind it, that his, his pleasure, his joy, his happiness is what drives him to create. Genesis 1 is a song, it's a poem. I mean, you read that and you feel God's pleasure in it. Someone beautifully described the miracle of turning water into wine at Cana. I remember that story, Jesus at the wedding, turning water into wine, and, and a poet described it as, water blushing at the presence of Jesus. Such a, be- such a beautiful line. Water blushing, turning red at the presence of the king. We can think of all of creation in the same terms. Stars lighting up because they see God. Brooks giggling and rivers chuckling and sun Standing up to greet the king. That's creation. This is what God had in mind when he created the world. It's an expression of his his happiness and joy. Creation is God's invitation to others into his own happiness. And when creation is working properly, it is happy. It's created to be good. It's created to be happy. Now think about all the images of trees clapping and hills singing and seas roaring. We even sang some of these lines today when we started the worship service. It's creation rejoicing in God. And Scripture is full of those metaphors of of things that God created responding to God in joyful emotion. The description of Adam and Eve in the garden is one of a happy life. They are completely content. They have purpose and meaning and a relationship with God and joy in their work. God was enjoying them and they were enjoying God and God's creation. Now, it's noteworthy to say that, that the images God uses to describe his renewed and restored creation, his kingdom, when when you hear and read these prophecies in Old and New Testament of how God is going to, what the world is going to be once Jesus returns and restores it. And almost invariably, the image is one of feasting and celebration, which cannot happen unless there is joy involved. I wonder how much you have thought about God as a happy God, as a God who shares his happiness with others. I think it's a, it's a perspective-shifting idea to think of God as a joyful being, as an essentially joyful being. The image of God singing and rejoicing and dancing over us in Zephaniah is not a new thing. This is not an unusual thing in Scripture. In fact, I would say that he will do at the end, at the return of Christ just exactly what he did at the beginning namely express his happiness to and over his creation this is what he wants to do which brings us to this question what is he he doing now about this creation that isn't happy I don't need to convince you that our world though has glimpses of joy certainly sometimes even if you get out in nature and you see the reflection of God but sometimes you don't Sometimes you see a twisted creation. If we look at our own lives, even just without the Bible's teaching on sin and our own messed up relationships, we look at our own lives and we say, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's hard to imagine this being a reflection of a happy God. Many times you say, if I were to judge God based on this, I would not assume he's happy. So what is happening in this world, in our lives that does not reflect who God really is where is the disconnect and the disconnect is of course is is because creation fell away from that joy is that what God created including us and in fact caused by us by Adam and Eve and us, everybody after them we've walked away and rejected the delight in God we have said we will find other sources of joy we will be happier without the happy God who created us. That's the core of our problem. And so, of course, not only our lives, but the whole creation is falling apart because it doesn't have the happy God at its center. And so what is God doing to remedy that? This is something that Scripture calls redemption, the buying back, the bringing back of creation to himself to restore it to the image that it originally had from the very beginning. I'd like us to look at God's work of redemption as a restoration of his own happiness. I'd like us to look at sin as an assault on the happiness of God. When Adam and Eve rejected God, this was a threat to God's happiness. This was an assault on his happiness, on his joy. And I'd like to suggest to all of us that we continue to live in that reality that every time we say, I will not rejoice in you, we attack God's happiness. I'd like to suggest to you this morning, this is a a big statement for me, and I hope you, you listen, I hope you follow my logic, I hope you agree with me, I hope you agree with the scriptures I'm using. But I'd like to suggest to you that in redeeming the world in Christ, God has actively been removing barriers to his own perfect joy. In the redeeming work in this world through Christ, God has been actively removing barriers to his own happiness and joy. Now, of course, in redemption, he is removing the barriers that we have towards him, of course. He's dealing with our issues and our sins, But what if his motivation is also, or even, I would say, primarily to restore his own perfect enjoyment of his creation? What if he's not just dealing with our issues? What if he's motivated by a fuller experience of his own happiness in this world? Now look at our passage, Zephaniah 3 see, all these promises of removal of barriers, removal of shame turned into praise, right? Removal of guilt, your judgment has been taken from you. Removal of enemies, removal of fear, reproach, and separation. The Lord is in your midst. Now, they are certainly barriers to our joy in God. We have have to start there. We have to say, I am not rejoicing in God because I have shame and I have guilt and I have enemies and I have reproach. But what if God sees them as barriers to his own happiness also? What if he's not just concerned with our happiness, which we know he is, but he's also concerned with his happiness? Now let me give you an illustration. If you love somebody, you know, Sting told us, set them free, I don't think that's a great strategy. If you love somebody, what do you do to express that love is to actually make them happy. But by making them happy, your happiness grows. As you express your love to someone, you actually become more joyful yourself. As I delight in someone, that delight is mine. That's my joy. That's my pleasure. And so if you love someone, you are happy to do something for them that is good for them, but it is also good for you, and it is right for you. So when your child is sick, and as a parent, you take care of that child and you help them get better, you will feel much happier when the child is better. Of course you will. That's great for the child. They're getting better. Somebody is caring for them. Somebody is removing barriers to their happiness. But you're also removing barriers to your happiness. Because if you love someone, your happiness is wrapped up in their happiness. You know, the parent is always as, as, only as happy as uh, the child that, that they love. And so when you think about relationships in the human realm, right? When you pursue someone's happiness and you remove barriers to their happiness, you're also removing barriers to your happiness. And that has to be part of your motivation. It cannot be all centered on that person. It has to be part of what you do naturally as an expression of your love for them so that your love grows, so that your happiness increases. And so what I'm saying this morning is that God's work of redemption in Christ is rooted at least in part, and I'm going to say in big part, in his own happiness and glory. God is in pursuit of his own happiness and glory. And what he's doing through Christ in our lives and in our world is actually making him happier. It's restoring that full expression, that perfect expression of joy in his creation. Now think about it. When God became human in Christ, is it not God wanting to be with the people he loves? to reunite with them, to invite them again into his happiness. This is God coming to us and saying, I'm going to get as close as I can to you because I want to delight in you. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a great expression of Trinitarian love, remember, The Trinitarian love, the Father delighting in the Son, the Spirit delighting in the Son. And yet, this is all happening in the context of the Incarnation when when God came into the broken world so he could love us. So he brings that Trinitarian happiness into our broken world. And he is growing in his own happiness. He's doing that so he can rejoice over us. When Jesus suffered and died on that cross... The point when we, we may poetically say that, that, that the dance of the Trinity was in some way disrupted on the cross. We can only say that poetically. We cannot say it theologically because we don't understand and we don't have the vocabulary to do it. But poetically, we can say that. The pain of his son notwithstanding, Scripture tells us in Isaiah 53.10 that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to crush his son. Do you see that it was not only out of necessity because of our sin that Jesus died, but it was also an extension of God's pleasure. Now this is how seriously God takes his own happiness, that he would be pleased To bruise his son. Unimaginable pain, and yet within that, a greater happiness is pursued. He did that so he can rejoice over us. Not only that we can rejoice in him and over him, but so he can rejoice over us. And during the resurrection, when Jesus rose from the dead on that bright Sunday morning in the garden, Isn't that an image of a restored creation with God walking in the garden again and enjoying his people? Those details are not accidental. This is God saying, I will once again enjoy a relationship with you just like it was in the garden, and we will once again walk together. We will once again converse, and you will delight in me, but I will also delight in you. When you look at the gospel accounts of Jesus coming back from death, the the post-resurrection meetings with his disciples, who is the happiest during those meetings? Not the disciples. They, They don't know what's going on. They're scared, they're uncertain, they're doubtful. Jesus is happy because he has conquered death for his people and he is happy to be with his people. He did that so He could rejoice over us. And then there's the giving of the Spirit. Again, if the only problem was our sin and our guilt that was taken care of on the cross and in the empty tomb, why send the Spirit? Why give us the Spirit of joy who bears fruit like joy, who communicates God's love directly into our hearts so we can respond in joy? Why do that? And what I'm suggesting to you this morning is God does all this so He can rejoice over us. It's important to Him to rejoice over us. It's His happiness that is at stake. There are two mind-blowing implications of this idea. One, if what I'm saying is true, if God is after His own happiness and He is actively removing barriers to His own joy... Expression of that in his creation and in his people. If that's true, one big implication is that the work of redemption has a much more secure foundation. The work of redemption has a much more secure foundation. If salvation is not as much about our sin as it is about his glory, which is difficult for us to imagine because we are locked in to our sin. But if his glory... Is a big part of it, if his happiness is a big part of it, should we not trust him even more? If I am right, God's happiness is at stake and he will surely do absolutely everything necessary to save us. Please engage on this point with me. How do I know God will keep his promises? How do I know God will save me? How do I know that he really loves me? If it's only about me, he feels pity towards me. He wants to save me from my sin. That is not enough for me because I know me. But what if that's not everything that is at play here? What if God is saying, I will keep my promises and I will make sure that you are saved and I will do everything I need to do for you because my happiness is at stake. Because it's about my glory. Which is why we pray not to us, but to you be all the glory. Because it's not about us, it's about what God is doing for Himself. Now, we're a big part of that. He has bound up His happiness with our happiness, so we are connected to that. But what if His driving motivation is not our sin, but His glory? and his pleasure. Second, my blown implication of this idea. If God is pursuing his own happiness and redemption, the love of God towards us is much greater than we had ever imagined. Let me explain what I mean. There's this idea among Christians, some Christians, that God loves us, but he loves us begrudgingly. We would say, yes, he loves us because he has to love us. (laughs) He loves us because Jesus somehow twisted his arm into loving us. Does the Father forgive me? He forgives me, but why? Well, because Jesus died. He has no other choice but to forgive me. Because Jesus did this amazing thing for me. What is the Father going to do? Of course he's going to accept me because of Jesus. But there's reluctance. He'd rather not accept me. He'd rather not love me, but because of Jesus, he has to. So he is begrudgingly loving me. It's as if Jesus tricked the Father into a relationship with me. And I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to last. Because at some point, the Father is going to figure it out. He's wise. He will know eventually that I don't belong in his presence. Many Christians live in that kind of fear. They believe that God loves them, but they only believe that God loves them a little bit, as much as he has to love them. What a terrible way to live. Does this idea of a God who begrudgingly loves us, does it fit with any of the images of love in Scripture? Ephesians 5, the groom that is awestruck with the beauty of of his bride. Is there any begrudging love there? I don't see it. What about the prodigal son in Luke 15 where the son, the long lost son is returning and the father, what does he do? Does he wait for an apology? Does he say, "Hold on everybody. Let's see if he's really changed. Let's see if he's matured. Let's see if he's going to make the right amends." Does he do any of that? He runs the father runs towards the son. He runs and he kisses him and he embraces him and he announces a feast in his honor. That's the image of God's love. Zephaniah 3, that's another image of God's love when God says, I will rejoice over you, I will exult over you with loud singing. It's amazing how many synonyms of joy you can fit into one verse. Zephaniah 3.17 Zephaniah But that's how God feels about us. Spurgeon said, there's a great quote from Spurgeon, when he said, Believers, you are happy when God blesses you, but you are not as happy as the God who who is blessing you. God is happier to bless you than you can ever be by receiving the gift that he gives you. You see, what Scripture tells us about God's love, uh, there's no reluctance, there's no hesitation, there's no limit to how he loves us, to what he feels about us. He doesn't forgive us just because he has to. He doesn't love us because Jesus tricked him into loving us. He doesn't do that begrudgingly. Matthew Henry puts it this way God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. It's a great line. He loves to love them which means that when God is expressing his love towards us, whether it's forgiveness or acceptance or blessing or affection, whatever that is, he is doing it with the full force of divine pleasure. So when God loves you, he loves you as only God can love you. With the extent of God's love, he loves you. He's not holding back. Because as he loves you, he enjoys loving you. To love you makes God happy. To love you makes God joyful. It brings him pleasure to love you. If that is true, how can I ever question that he loves me? If he doesn't just love me because of me, but he loves me because of his own joy and happiness, my relationship with him would be totally different if I believed that. God loves us because it makes him happy. Now, we're working through these logical pieces, right? What is God like? He's a happy God. Why is he doing what he's doing in Christ, this whole work of redemption? He's doing that to remove all possible barriers to his own expression of joy and happiness towards his creation, including us. So he's dealing with sin because sin is in the way. He's dealing with our guilt because guilt is in the way. He's dealing with our shame because it's in the way. He's dealing with the distortion of God's image, with the destruction of God's creation, because all of that is in the way. And he wants to be fully happy. So he's working through all those obstacles, sending his son to live among us, sending his son to die, sending his son to rise. All of that is to remove those barriers so he can be perfectly happy in us and he can rejoice over us. This is what he's doing. This is the image of God that we have in Zephaniah. This is the vision that he wants us to have, and he says, hold on to this when you're dealing with your stuff now. Because if you see God as a dancing, joyful, singing God, this will change how you live. This will change who you are. So I'm going to press you in the remaining minutes of this message. I'm going to press you to conform your soul to the image of God dancing over you and and singing over you with all joy and gladness. How does this vision of Zephaniah, this idea of God who is happy and pursues his own happiness and redemption, how does that change you? When you imagine God singing over you, just imagine that. Imagine God quieting you with his love, comforting you, embracing you. Imagine God rejoicing over you with loud singing. Friends, what is happening in your heart when you think about those things? How does it make you feel that God is this kind of God and this is how He feels about you? That He is rejoicing over you. When you think about the Father running towards His Son, when He sees Him far away and He's waiting for Him and He sees the Son coming home, And he looks and he sees him, and he runs as fast as he can so he can embrace him and kiss him and give him a new set of clothes and a ring on his finger and announce a feast in his honor. What do you feel when you think about that? When you think about Jesus looking at you as a groom, looking at the beautiful bride on their wedding day, what does it do to you when you think about that? We can't remain indifferent. When you think about, when you imagine that, when that vision of God, that vision of Zephaniah 3, vision of God, grabs hold of your mind, it has to drop into your heart. It has to change you. And the natural reaction, the reasonable reaction to that, if we're really engaged with what Zephaniah is telling us, the natural reaction is joy. Joy. Happiness, pleasure, delight in God. Remember how our passage starts, verse, verse 14. Verse 14 is Zephaniah 3. What does it tell us to do? It tells us to sing aloud, O oh, daughter of Zion. There's the familial language, the father saying, My daughters will sing. My sons will rejoice. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. No restraints. God is saying, I am so happy with you. You will be happy with me, daughter of Jerusalem. These are commands. Christians, these are commands. These are not extra things for you to work on in your Christian life. These are essential things to your Christian life. We are commanded to rejoice. But why? Because God rejoices over us. Please, get this wrong sequence out of your heads. And many of us have been trained in that through parenting and education and, yes, even church life. And the wrong sequence is, you rejoice, Christian, in me, and then I might rejoice in you. This is how many of us think of God. We need to rejoice so that we can feel his joy towards us. But the gospel pattern is utterly different. And we see that in in Zephaniah. God is rejoicing over us. He is rejoicing over us. The the image of God throughout Scripture is him rejoicing over us. And we respond to that by rejoicing in him, by delighting in him. Uh, One uh, writer said this. Nothing is more powerful to engage our affection than to find that we are beloved. Nothing is more powerful to engage our affection than to find that we are beloved, to have the love of one who is altogether lovely, to know that the glorious majesty of heaven has any regard unto us. How must it astonish and delight us How must it overcome our spirit and melt our hearts and put our whole soul into a flame? What he says is that what moves us as human beings is someone else's love for us. And if that person is good, our response will be good. If that person is great, our response will be greater. If this person is altogether lovely, There are no limits to our response. And that's the person who loves us. This is the person who says, I love to love you, I enjoy loving you, and as I'm loving you, please respond to me with your love. Are you astonished by God's love this morning? Are you delighted? Are you comfortable with the language I'm using? (laughs) Delight, astonishment. Pleasure? Is your spirit overcome with his joy over you? Does your heart melt when you think about him loving you? Is your soul on fire because of his love? We have to ask ourselves those questions and we have to answer them honestly. Because some of us are saying this morning, I don't feel that. I don't feel the joy that Zephaniah commands me to have. I'm not joyful. Please listen to me carefully. God is actively removing all barriers to your happiness in Him. Right now, God is working in your life to remove all barriers to your joy in Him. Now look at our passage again. The question is, why are we not rejoicing? Here are the possible objections. Because of guilt. But he says, I have taken away the judgments against you. I'm going through the text. I feel guilty so I don't rejoice. But God says, I've taken your judgments against you. There's no guilt left. On the cross, your guilt has been taken away. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I don't feel close to him. I feel distant from him. But what does Zephaniah says? The king of Israel, your Lord, is in your midst. You feel distant from him, but he has come to you. And by his Holy Spirit, he is present with you in the closest possible way. Jesus came into the world to be with you. But maybe we say, I'm afraid. I have fear. I don't rejoice because I have fear. Well, here's the promise he makes. By the time this work of redemption is totally finished, you shall never again fear evil. Friends, you will forget what fear feels like by the time God is finished with his creation. Maybe I don't rejoice because of deep sadness and mourning, but he will quiet you with his love. He will comfort you. The Holy Spirit of God will speak words of love and comfort and grace into your heart. Maybe I don't feel significant or worthy of his love. This is a common barrier to Christian joy. But look at our text. He is organizing a feast in your honor. And the promise is that you will no longer suffer reproach. What is reproach by just being neglected and being felt insignificant? But God says, I will have a feast for you. And more than that, there will be praise and renown. Maybe I don't feel like rejoicing this morning because of shame. But he promises to change your shame into praise and renown. God looks at your shame and he says, One day, this will be praise instead of shame. This will be renown and fame instead of shame. Maybe you don't rejoice today because of loss. But the last verse of our passage, he will restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is an unbelievable promise because we have all lost something or someone. And yet God says that there will be a time when your fortunes will be restored before your eyes. All these things will be redeemed somehow. And you will have what you had lost. Now, yes, we're fighting our enemies. Yes, there's still oppressors that have not been dealt with. I don't want to minimize our experience in this broken world, including our broken hearts. Yes, we're dealing with these things. But Jesus rose from the dead so that all your enemies would be defeated. And eventually, the promise is that eventually, eventually you will have no enemies left, you will have no oppressors, you will feast in his house, you will be in his kingdom, and he will rejoice over you with loud singing and dancing. That's the vision. See, you hold on to that, and then you look at your life now and you say, I can be more joyful than I am right now because of that. Even though, even though I have enemies right now and I have oppressors, even though I'm still dealing with shame, even though I'm still dealing with guilt, and I have lost and I have mourned, even though the vision of a God who rejoices over me, the father who welcomes his child, the groom who, who is awestruck at the vision of his wife, that makes me rejoice. I'm gonna leave you with this one question, and I I will press it a little bit before, before we're done, before we come to the table. But I want you to consider seriously this question. Does God have your joy? Does he have your joy? He may have your obedience. He may have your repentance even. He may have your morality, but does he have your joy? He may have your theological orthodoxy. That's good. But does he have your joy? Does he also have your joy? He may have your worldview, your well-thought-out understanding of reality that is based in his scriptures. But does he have your joy? He may have your politics and your economics and your social ethics. But does he have your joy? He may have your worship. You're here. Your awe, even. But does he have your joy as your worship? Friends, he may have your attention, even your fear. But does he have your joy? Will you commit today this moment, to pursue joy in Christ, to fulfill God's vision of a happy creation, including you, happy creatures, in it? Would you accept this morning that as George Mueller said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord do you agree with that this morning I want you to agree with me I'm pushing you to agree with me because I think this is right and I think this is life changing I think this vision of the singing God from Zephaniah 3 can transform your life if you're not a believer come to this God to this kind of God that I'm describing a happy God that wants to rejoice over you that sent his son so he can rejoice over you and he wants your joy, come to him. If you are a believer and you've neglected rejoicing in God, man, you've been missing out. The Christian life is supposed to be a joyful life. And so with Mueller, commit today to have the first great and primary business to which you would attend every day is to have your soul happy in the Lord. Does he have your joy?